security breaches in organizations are on the rise, and the amount of data being exposed is terrifying. The Danish government's tax portal exposed the records of 1.26 million citizens. An EasyJet breach exposed data belonging to 9 million customers. And a fraudster got experience in South Africa to hand over data for 24 million customers. And that is just a few from the last year. If you've built a 10 meter wall, they're going to build a 12 meter ladder. It's an arms race. There's no question about it. In today's episode, we size up zero trust networking architecture, every network security expert's favorite topic, and the bane of some organizations' existence. We talk about why a little paranoia is better for everyone, what happens when the compromise is in the hardware itself, and how you can implement zero trust without locking the CEO out of their emails. All that and much more, I'm Michael Bird, and this is Technology Untangled. For as long as we've been using computers, we've been trying to think of ways to keep intruders out. And for well over a decade, networking experts have been singing the praises of a little thing called zero trust. So zero trust is moving from a position whereby you would trust things that were on the corporate network to one whereby anything that's on the corporate network should be treated as being hostile and therefore not trusted. The first thing to understand is that zero trust isn't a tool. This is a framework or an approach to network security. And quite simply, as a default, you trust nobody or no thing. Now, you might be thinking, that all sounds a bit over the top. Who's going to want to hack us? But if recent events have taught us anything, it's that nobody is safe. To hear why, I called up Josephine Wolfe. I'm Josephine Wolf. I'm an assistant professor of cybersecurity policy at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And I work on uh, issues of cybersecurity and digital privacy policy and regulation. If you've been too busy recently, what with homeschooling, pee with Joe Wicks, making your own sourdough starter and binging on Tiger King, then you might have missed what we're now considering to be one of the biggest security breaches that we've ever heard about. The SolarWinds Compromise. So the SolarWinds compromise begins with this company, SolarWinds, that provides uh, software to other companies and organizations. And in particular, one of the types of software they provide is this security dashboard sort of monitoring tool that's called Orion. And like all software, they provide updates to it. So periodically, they'll publish for all of their customers some code that they want their customers to download and install to update their products. And the update server that SolarWinds maintained, which held all of these pieces of code that they were asking their customers to download, got compromised by outside actors who were able to upload a fake update. So the Orion update that went out to all of the SolarWinds customers included this code that actually created a backdoor in all of their customer systems who downloaded it so that intruders could get in and get access to those networks. The first organization to realize they had been compromised was security company FireEye. 
Once they'd traced the problem back to the software update, they put out a public announcement to warn their clients and other organisations who may have been affected. And the victims snowballed. From private companies to organisations at the highest echelons of government. This was a big one. It's really not just the organizations that were direct customers and clients of SolarWinds, right? Those are sort of the first order victims. But once the adversaries had gotten into some of those organizations' computer networks, they then started trying to root around and find ways they could get into other organizations. So for instance, we know they got into FireEye and they were looking around to steal some stuff that they might use to access the computer networks of FireEye clients. We know they got into Microsoft and were trying to do something similar there. Um, so I think it's still very much an open question, sort of how many jumps or how many different organizations were sort of hit by this and in what direction and what pathways. This compromise is known as a supply chain attack, which is a vulnerability that's entering your system from a third party. It happens before you're responsible for it and before you're even monitoring it. And so in this case, right, we think of SolarWinds as the supplier. They're the ones who are providing the software to thousands of customers and they get compromised. They don't realize it at the time. They then pass all of that compromised software onto their customers and so the customers who have sort of done whatever their vetting process is to decide, like, we trust this company, we think their security practices are good, take that update, accept it as having been vetted, having, you know, come from a trusted supplier and install it in their systems. And so it's a supply chain attack in the sense that it wasn't that somebody sort of went directly to the Department of Homeland Security systems or the Microsoft computer systems and found a vulnerability there and got in that way. It came in from a party that those organizations believed was a trusted vendor and therefore was sort of much harder for them to detect in a lot of ways. A high-profile attack that hit the likes of Homeland Security. Interesting. Who would do such a thing? So the sort of US government consensus seems to be that it's the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service. And that that's certainly kind of been the accepted attribution within the United States. There hasn't been a whole lot of detail published about why exactly we think that or how we know that, but it's certainly sort of what the US government has been saying and responding to. Once the hackers were within the victims' organizations' systems, they were able to authenticate themselves by forging digital certificates and then go around as they please looking at whatever they wanted emails from the US Department of Commerce, and info about Microsoft services were some of their chosen reading material. Josephine says there are a few factors that make this attack quite unlike anything we've seen before. I think one of the things that's really scary about this as a compromise is that there's not a clear fix. So often when we think about some of the sort of large-scale cybersecurity incidents, there's either a very particular vulnerability that you're dealing with. So something like the Heartbleed um, incident from a few years ago, you sort of have a very clear mission of like, okay, we need to patch this thing. Or there's a very sort of targeted victim set. So if we think about like the Office of Personnel Management breach for the US government a few years ago, that was a big deal. There was a lot of data stolen, but it was fairly contained. We had a sense of, you know, this is what was taken and now it's done and 
could wrap our heads around it perhaps a little better. And when I say I think this is going to sort of take years to understand and years to remediate, part of that is the uncertainty of who was hit and how, right? And just sort of investigating that and figuring that out is going to take a long time. And the second part of that is that sort of there's not a clear, you know, okay, you do this, you disable this tool and you're done, right? So for instance, one of the things that, you know, very obviously people started saying immediately after this came out was, okay, we should turn off the Orion products. And that was probably a good idea. But by the time we detected this, that was very clearly not enough, right? Sort of that intrusion point had been just an initial foothold for a much larger set of compromises across these organizations. And so I think tracking the full scope of who was hit and how each of their individual systems was compromised and sort of rooting all of that out is going to be a very slow and ongoing process for a long time because it's such a far-reaching uh, tool in terms of how many victims it hit, but also such a far-reaching tool in terms of what it seems to have granted access to. Scary stuff. And we're going to be coming back to this later on. It's clear that cybercriminals are becoming much more ambitious. And that's one of the reasons the Trust Nobody approach has gained traction. But there are others. Over the past 20 years, the way we network our architectures hasn't really changed. But what has changed is where we use them and with what. Here's Simon Wilson, CTO for Aruba in the UK and Ireland. If you think about the, the early days of networks, simply because you were in an office at a certain location meant that you were given the level of trust that location would afford. So if I was in the finance department, I'd be given the same level of trust as a finance user, at least to the network itself. If I was in the guest part of the building, maybe I'd get guest access. But, you know, just because you're in a part of the building doesn't mean to say you are who you say you are. In a nutshell, Zero Trust wants to avoid just that. If you plug into a port, you shouldn't be able to access anything until you've proved who you are. Think entering your credentials to log on to a Wi-Fi hotspot in a coffee shop. The reason we need this approach is due to two major changes, our mobility and our devices. We want to be a lot more mobile these days, so certainly organizations that have implemented hot desking strategies, you know, they want to reduce the amount of floor space. They want to you know, reduce their carbon footprint. They realize they don't need as bigger offices. And again, after the pandemic, I think a lot of locations won't need as bigger offices as they had before. So they're going to be implementing hot desking technologies. And of course, if you're not where you used to be, if there is no finance department anymore, because it's a hot desking environment, then we need to establish who people are at the time they connect rather than just because they're in a part of the building. We used to have that allocated device that we would use. Now we're being increasingly allowed or even encouraged to use our own personal devices, right? It's good for us because we get a choice. But it's also sometimes good for the organisation as well because, again, helps uh, with you know employee retention. You use the device you want to use. And, of course, it saves money as well because they don't have to buy the thing. Perimeter-based security is out of the window. After all, the edge isn't where it used to be. To mitigate the problems of dispersed workers accessing the network on their own devices, we need to implement zero trust policies. But what does that look like in practice? You need a rules base. You need to basically set the rules about what you will allow people to do, how granular you want to make it. So do I want to make it so that the rules are different for me using my iPhone versus my iPad or my laptop or my desktop? Is it going to be different if I'm on my wired home network or a wireless home network or at a coffee shop? 
Is it going to be different if I'm running um, my personal device that doesn't have some kind of mobile device management software like Mobile Iron maybe on it? Will I change the level of access I'm giving people if I'm running a certain version of the operating system? In other words, if I decide on my personal device, I don't want to upgrade to the latest OS, you know, the latest iOS version or Android version. Does that change what I should be allowed to do? Are you going to be concerned about the other applications on that particular device? Because maybe, you know, the mix of applications, potentially some of those are not necessarily known to be safe and they could potentially pose a risk. So, so you have to have a set of rules about who, what, where, when and why is going to access. Then, of course, you need a policy engine to implement that, which is basically taking that rules base and combining that into creating a policy. So we can create a different policy for me at home with my personal device or me in the office with the office device and anywhere in between. Then you need a method of enforcement, and that relies on having the technology in place, so the hardware, so the wireless networks and the wire uh, switches, maybe even the gateways as well, that can implement those protocols. But that's where we're actually in a good place because most of those devices that have been sold for at least the last five years have got great implementations of a method of enforcement. They have all the protocols required. So the building blocks are already there. It just requires that uh, customers put them together. So we've got the elements of setting rules, implementing policy, monitoring the network and taking action when people or things aren't acting quite as they should. Like, say, if I logged in from New York and then from London two hours later. One of the key things is what's called a land speed violation, whereby it's not possible that I could have logged in in London and then logged in in New York two hours later. So that one's that's an easy one to pick up. It becomes slightly more challenging when you say, well, I logged on in London and then I logged on in Birmingham two hours later. Well, that's borderline, right? So you then have to start thinking about other criteria, like am I using the same device? If it was a fixed PC and now it's now it's a mobile device, or if it's the same mobile device but in a different location. So all of these factors are being combined to help make a better decision as to the level of trust. Thankfully, a lot of the activity on our networks can be monitored automatically with tools that flag up any activity outside of the rules and protocols that we've established. Of course, like most things I seem to talk about on this podcast, the need for zero trust has been amplified due to the pandemic. For starters, we're using an increasing amount of our own devices. And as HPE Chief Technologist Chris Dando explains, both the remote workforce and our eventual return to the office present some unique challenges. The first thing is that as a workforce, we are much more distributed than we were before. You know, we're all working at home and therefore we are doing things in the home that maybe we weren't doing at the home once upon a time. You know, you just take a financial trader who used to absolutely be in the office to do trading type systems. They're all doing those sorts of things out at home now. Trying to make sure that you've got security at its ultimate level and you've got, you are applying these policies in the pandemic environment has become much more important. If we also think about what it's meant for how we are adopting technologies in the enterprise, that's also been impacted by the pandemics. We are now introducing new technologies into the enterprise space. You know, we're getting non-touch access into locations. So you're applying, you know, potentially facial recognition, so you don't have to touch doors and all of those sorts of things. You know, we're seeing cameras that will monitor your your temperature but of course all of these devices are ip enabled and therefore on the the network and therefore it's increasing that view as to saying if we're implementing more new technologies into the enterprise marketplace from 
organizations that maybe we didn't have a long-term relationship with, we need to secure those in a different way than we would have done. When we think about network security, we often think about the most common compromises. Things like clicking a dodgy link in a phishing email. Something which, let's be honest, we've all fallen for. And most of us work in the tech space. But what if the compromises are within the hardware itself? There have been quite a few alleged compromises of hardware over the years. One of the most bombastic accusations was that of rogue chips embedded onto some supermicro servers. As reported by Bloomberg and strongly denied by all involved, I hasten to add. Whether it happened or not, the concept serves up some interesting takeaways for Chris Dando around trust in our hardware supply chain. So for starters, you really want to make sure that you've got good insight and understanding of your entire supply chain, whether you're a man manufacturer or whether you are someone who's buying finished goods. Our supply chains nowadays are largely global. They're not all in a single country and therefore componentry and software is likely to have been developed over multiple countries. That means that you need to have good methods and processes in place so that you can understand if there are any breaches in the supply chain. So it's not just about, when you talk about zero trust, it's not just about, you know, once it's got to me, you need to start actually take it from a perspective of not actually trusting my supply chain, even though they're all reputable companies also. And therefore I want to have information given to me if anything changes within that. I need to be able to make sure that when something is shipped from the manufacturing site, when it arrives to me on site, which may have been you know, gone through various shipping people and so forth i can actually validate that what actually turns up on my doorstep as an installed inside my enterprise environment is exactly the same as it was when it left the manufacturing site i want to make sure that the software that's preloaded is still the same and that hasn't been modified during the supply chain process so how do you identify those sorts of things and then of course once it's deployed if somebody goes and updates some of that embedded software do I actually see that? How do I detect that? What's built into the platform to actually tell me if something has changed and the behavior of my devices starts changing? How on earth can an end user, end customer, how on earth can they trust their supply chain if it's in a different country? Do they have to just trust the word of what the manufacturer says or is there something that they can do? Well, so, so there's certain things that you can look for within the products that you, you acquire. When I plug your device in, onto my network, will it tell me if it's changed since when you built it? If I think about when it's actually deployed in my environment, can I validate that the software update that I load onto the hardware is actually the one that you as a supplier released or has it been changed? So does it have a fingerprint, a signature on it that actually says this has actually come from you and is a valid piece of software rather than a corrupted piece of software? And then there's aspects about, you know, how do I monitor what the device is doing? This is really what you know, quite a lot of zero trust is about is actually monitoring and understanding what the normal behavior of a device is and then understanding if it changes and if it changes for a valid reason that i know and understand or if it's changing because it's been infiltrated or amended regardless of whether that be from somebody inside the environment somebody outside the environment or somebody in the supply chain side of things what if it was during the manufacturing process? What if it was modified then? So before you could validate it, what if some circuitry or componentry was put onto the motherboard? How can you validate that? 
So part of that comes down to the firmware. So if you've got a, something that's on a motherboard inside the computer and so forth, then for that to work, then it's got to have something that enables it to operate. So it's got to be being spoken to by the firmware, the BIOS, some piece of software, theoretically, you know, then an operating system of some sort needs to, to run on it. If those sorts of things happen, then you can detect that by a change, you know, to, to actually make that happen, you need to be able to change the firmware. Also, is this device operating in exactly the same way as all the other devices of the same kind that I've got on my network? So if I've got one rogue device that's doing something unusual because it's got something put on it, can I actually see that that's doing something unexpected? Is it communicating somewhere else? Is it sending data somewhere that you wouldn't expect it to be? Because zero trust is a concept, you can apply it to just about anything. And from a business perspective, there are some pretty persuasive reasons why you'd want to do so. There can be massive reputational damage as a result of uh, breaches. The vast majority of breaches that occur, the actual breach has occurred some time previously, and I'm talking about you know potentially months in advance of actual damage being done. But what actually happens is because a zero trust model hasn't been applied once somebody has managed to get inside the organization they've managed to propagate through the systems and because of that elapsed time things can be you know well and truly inside the organization by the time they are detected so if you think of the benefits that you get with a zero trust model the first thing is that you're going to detect issues much quicker and therefore the impact of issues should be much lower than they would traditionally be. You might detect them before they cause issues because the fingerprint has changed. You might uh, be able to react much more quickly because you've now got controls in place to isolate certain things off. Clearly, you've got the financial benefits that say, you know, anything associated with reputational damage or theft of IP or all of those sorts of things that people are concerned about will be positive. But um, beyond that, You've also got to think about some of the um, the impacts from things that are more fundamental to our everyday lives. You know, where you're talking about the application into uh, you know, national critical infrastructure, you know, breakage mm. can have an impact on citizens, ourselves, our healthcare systems, all of those sorts of things. So it's not all about financial, it can be widely impacting. Okay, so it seems pretty cut and dry. If you want to protect your organisation, then zero trust is the way to go. However, a lot of organisations run into trouble during the implementation stage. I asked Simon Wilson why that's the case. It can be complicated. A lot of the security tools that we do use today, the protocols, things like ATT.1x, these have been available for many, many years, even though companies still today are not necessarily implementing them on their wired devices, and it's because it can be complicated. I think there has been too much of a fear that you can accidentally lock people out, particularly the executive level. And as a result of that, some organisations have been reluctant to implement these kind of security protocols to deliver this kind of zero trust. Plus, I guess, you know, sometimes you don't think that it's going to happen to you. So as a result of having fairly strong security on the building, strong door controls inside the building where departments of people go. Maybe people thought, well, actually, you don't actually need it on the network. And if it's complicated and difficult to do, and maybe they were sweating some legacy assets as well. That can be a challenge because, again, even though the protocols have been around for a while, they've not necessarily been robust and easy to implement for all of that period of time. But certainly today, if you're using the latest hardware technology, it should be fairly easy to implement and they should be doing it. 
By now, the tools to implement zero trust are established and mature. And you'd hope so. The term was actually coined back in 1994. But does all this extra security mean lots of extra hassle for the end user? This is interesting because the typical user experience for zero trust should be no different than before. They should be entering their password once and that should be then used as one part of the decisions made to decide what level of trust they should get. One of the things you have to be careful about is the complexity. Not just the complexity of the implementation, but the complexity for the users. You know, the best security systems are almost transparent to the user. They don't get in the way. And if you add levels of security that kind of become obstructive, a hindrance, one, it impacts people's productivity. They get frustrated. But also you can see people trying to find ways around it sometimes. And that means it's counterproductive, right? Because you think you've got security in place. You think it's protecting you. And actually, no, people are going around the other way because it was too obstructive. Tools being developed for zero trust security models are designed with user experience in mind to avoid this kind of circumnavigation thing. I'd imagine that these brand new tools are going to require a massive effort from organizations to deploy. For Chris, the most important thing to consider is your strategy. If you ripped everything out and started from afresh, it would, of course, be a massive engineering exercise. So you need to do these things, you know, a piece at a time, but really start with a an architectural model because part of this is about the network, but part of it is about people, process and tools as well. So you almost need to start with a, what is our strategy for zero trust? How do we want to go? But you don't apply it to everywhere all in one go. What you do is you start and look at your most valuable assets, the things that are going to have the biggest impact if they're compromised. And that can be from a reputation perspective, it can be from an operational perspective, and it can be from a financial perspective, it can be you know, any of those or all of them. And start focusing on those high impact areas that you want to really have running regardless of what might actually be happening in the environment and therefore applying extra levels of protection to those types of scenarios. Can I go to the shops and buy myself a zero trust? No, but there are some really interesting um, papers out there. So, um, you know, the UK's NCSC has put a paper together which uh, describes the sorts of things that you should consider when you're looking at zero trust. That's the National Cybersecurity Council. Also, there's articles from NIST. So if you think about cloud computing, you're actually putting data outside your uh, your enterprise boundaries when you put your data into a cloud environment. And therefore, when you think about cloud computing and the adoption of microservices, and you need to once again think about how does zero trust apply in those sorts of things. Yes, in theory, you can apply the zero trust concept to just about anything and help is very much at hand and we'll link you up to a load of papers in the show notes. So now that you know a bit more about zero trust, what it means in practice and what the implications are for organizations, you might be wondering about where it could fit into the SolarWinds compromise. Here's Josephine Wolf again. So zero trust networking architecture, it's hard to imagine a situation in which that could be applied that would protect against that first stage where SolarWinds uh, has its update server compromised and customers are downloading those updates because that has to be part of every organization sort of routine. That's part of the security hygiene. We encourage downloading updates from your vendors and all of that. I think the question is sort of in that second stage once that initial foothold has been achieved, would a zero trust networking architecture have been helpful in sort of stopping the spread? And there I think the answer is 
Yes, but depending on how it's implemented. And I think one of the things that's really sort of important and sometimes misunderstood about zero trust networking architecture is it's not one thing, right? It's not sort of, you know, either you've done the one way to do it or you haven't. It's uh, an idea, conceptual sort of principle for building your network and computer systems. Um, and so I think sort of depending on how you implement it, depending on how you go about trying to uh, verify that devices and users really are who they claim to be, it might have prevented some of what we saw in the later stages of SolarWinds. And again, that's with the caveat that we don't know all of what we saw in that second stage. We're still figuring out sort of how that was leveraged. Um, but I think definitely there's a sense that the digital certificates that the intruders were able to forge would not have been enough to get access to all parts of an organization that had a really sort of rigorous verification scheme in place for devices, for users that adhered to some of the sort of most stringent ideas of zero trust networking architecture. So there you have it. Zero trust could be useful here, depending on how it's being implemented. The level of trust we allow to parts of our network really depends on what we're trying to protect. If you're an ice cream shop, you might have less stringent authentication than if you're the Department of Homeland Security. But the perceived complexity might be off-putting for organisations at the beginning of their zero trust journey. So I asked Josephine how she'd approach it. I think one of the things that, that is also worth keeping in mind about this is nobody has a zero trust networking architecture, right? There's, there's no such thing. It's an impossible aim. If you had a zero trust networking architecture, nobody would ever be able to access anything in your network except for you. And so I think that there's sort of, again, a little bit of a sense that people feel they're working towards an impossible goal and it becomes so burdensome, so expensive, so slow that they can't do any of the things they need to do. Um, and I would say sort of the right way to think about that zero trust networking architecture is as something that you're always working towards and something where the rules and the standards are going to change over time. Right, what we think of as a zero trust networking architecture today is going to look probably somewhat different two years from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, as we start seeing new ways to circumvent some of those security controls and authentication schemes and start developing new security tools to address that. As the attacks we're seeing become ever more complex, zero trust tools and methodologies will advance too. So is zero trust the end game or is there something new on the horizon? I think we'll certainly see fundamental shifts in the future. It's a little hard to predict what those will look like because it's a little hard to predict what people's computer networks will look like in the future. I do think that what we're calling a zero trust networking architecture now is in some sense a sort of packaging of a lot of the security tools and practices that we've been encouraging for a while, right? So when we think about things like network segmentation, stronger authentication practices, more traffic monitoring, I would think of this a little bit as, you know, not a new paradigm exactly for doing security, but a way of trying to sort of put some of those different pieces together. And I think you'll continue to see iterations on that, maybe even with that same name for a while, but the actual sort of technical implementation of what it is we're trying to protect against and how that works will certainly shift over time. The tools and implementation for Zero Trust might change over time, but the message remains the same. 
the hackers and the criminals are getting smarter and they're getting better funded and we're seeing more reports of these being state-sponsored, which is really scary, right? Because they have big budgets. If the hackers build the 10-metre ladder, we need to build a 12-metre wall. And we know that by building that 12-metre wall, they're going to go and build themselves a 14-metre ladder. So despite a little complexity in implementation, zero-trust networking architecture is the best chance that we've got. Trust nobody, authenticate everything, and constant vigilance. Or, as I like to think about it, and bear with me here, in the words of the bouncer at the rubbish nightclub in my hometown 15 years ago, sorry mate, if you're not on the list, you're not coming in. You have been listening to Technology Untangled. I'm your host, Michael Bird, And a huge thanks to today's guests, Chris Dando, Simon Wilson and Josephine Wolfe. And you can find more about some of the stuff that we talked about in today's episode in the show notes. This episode was written, produced and edited by Isabel Pollard with sound design and mixing by Alex Bennett and production support from Harry Morton, Alex Podmore and Tom Clark. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. Thank you so much for tuning in and we'll see you next time.